Welcome to Fireside Financial. Together, Joe Curry and Regan Schiller offer and discuss insights and advice on all aspects of retirement planning. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, sit back and join us by the fireside as we explore all the topics related to planning for your retirement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fireside Financial. I'm your co-host, Joe, along with my co-host, Regan. How are you today, Regan? Excellent. It's uh, Thursday at the time of this recording, so one day closer to the weekend. Yeah, and so today we should be pretty polished on this topic. We're doing estate planning essentials, and this is kind of run two for us because unfortunately in run one a couple of weeks ago when we tried to record it, my power went out and we lost everything. So we're going to give it another shot. That's right. Starting from scratch, but that's okay. We'll be a little bit more, like you said, sharpened or polished on it. Yeah, exactly. I think what we'll do today is just want to hit on some of the key points for people to consider and make sure they have in place when it comes to estate planning. And no better place to start than the will, because ultimately that is our estate plan, right? I think everyone knows this, but we've talked about this in the past. I think over 50% of Canadians don't have a will in place. And the ones that do have a will in place, I can't remember the number, but it's a very large percentage of those that have an out-of-date will. This is something everybody knows that they need to have. I don't think there's anyone who would disagree that having a will in place is a good thing, but it's one of those things that never feels urgent, Mm -hmm. right? It never feels like it's critical. I have to do it today. It's kind of on that to-do list that lives forever and it never actually gets addressed. I guess thinking about the will, it is important. There's a lot of reasons why it's important. Biggest one that I wanted to bring up, Regan, is just that having that will and that documentation about what you want to have happen, should something happen to you, is going to make things a lot more clear for your beneficiaries, your heirs about your wishes, rather than you passing away with nothing in place and nowhere to start and kind of almost guaranteeing some kind of a fight in the family. That's my thought anyway. I always say that parents never want to think that their kids are going to fight about their money and they'll get along and everything will be kosher. But certainly there is those circumstances where that is the case, but there are also many other circumstances where it is not the case. <laughs> and kind of echoing when you say having a good will in place that your wishes are laid out, just makes it a lot easier for the family and your chances of family arguments are going to be dramatically less. Exactly. And then some of the other things when it comes to the will is thinking about maybe other considerations or unique family dynamics. A lot of times they have the I love you will, which is, you know, you have a couple, maybe they have kids and, you know, something happens to One spouse, everything goes to the other spouse. When they pass away, everything goes to the kids. That's pretty straight and simple. But sometimes there's second marriages, kids from previous marriages. Sometimes there's dependent or disabled children that need to be looked after. And this isn't so much our crowd or, you know, our listeners, I don't think, Regan, but also even things like guardianship for kids, right? Yeah. You know, maybe a couple examples there on the second marriage. For an example, I heard another advisor, she kind of asked the question to people when this isn't set up properly is, so which one of you wants to disinherit your kids? And so (laughs) where I'm going with that is if we have a second marriage and let's just say both spouses now in the second marriage leave everything to their new spouse because, you know, they want them to be able to continue to live their retirement lifestyle, whatever it is. But then that spouse that they leave everything to their will says, I leave everything to my kids. And so effectively what's happened is the first spouse to pass away has disinherited their kids because everything went to the second spouse. So without proper planning, people unintentionally could be disinheriting their kids. Yeah, blended families definitely brings in potential to bring in a lot more layers of complexity for sure. You know, and the other thing you said, our listeners may not be relevant to them, but I'm sure they have kids that 
have children and things of that nature, or maybe they are at that stage in life. But one thing to consider when getting your will done with a young family, the reasons I would stress that they get that completed is husband, wife, young family, let's say all the kids are under the age of 10. If something happened to mom and dad at the same time, well, what's going to happen is the kids at age 18, they're not going to have access to your capital or your wealth, if you will, right away. But at age 18, they would have full access to that money. And I don't know about you, Joe, when I was 18, I probably could have made better decisions <laughs> with money. And so what you could put into your will is what's called a testamentary trust clause, which just basically allows you to, for lack of better words, control your money beyond the grave. So you could say, my kids can receive the full capital at age 27 or 30, whatever it is you picked, or they could use it for certain life events. And again, that's just really taking some time to do it to, in essence, protect your children from themselves. Yeah, and that might be applicable to grandchildren too, right? Like a lot of people want to leave some money to the kind of skip a generation and leave some money there too. So there could also be some you know, requirements around what that looks like as well. I was in a meeting the other day with a client and the wills and estate lawyer, and they had a very dated uh, will. Their situation was complex with various other different factors, but the point of this is that the lawyer, when he was going through their current will, which was done up by a paralegal assistant, essentially he was able to pick a lot of very loose language in the will that could be very problematic from what their actual intentions are with their estate. And he was able to identify these things and course correct, essentially. But that's all he does is a wills and estates like nothing else. That's his only area of practice. And I think when you're dealing with your estate plan and your will, finding a lawyer that does just specialize in those key areas is going to be a key component. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Regan. I mean, we have a pretty in-depth checklist that we take our clients' wills through in our firm. And I can say for sure, I've never, ever looked at a will that didn't have something that should be updated or corrected or was missing especially the clients that we're seeing. You know, Peterborough is a small city. A lot of our clients are local. Because it's a smaller city, we don't see a ton of specialists in estate planning. We see a lot of generalists. When you're dealing with a generalist, it's not to say that there are no generalists who can write a good will or you know, have a good process. But as a rule of thumb, I would say that you know, there's usually some pieces missing when people are trying to be all things to all people. You know, another good thing about the will is it brings the conversation for, you know, mom and dad have the conversation with the advisor and the lawyers uh, in this particular case that I'm speaking to, but it gives you a chance to really think through what you want to have happen with your money. And if you have to ahead of time, you can articulate that and talk to your family about these decisions and why and get them maybe involved, ask them if they do want to be the executor or don't get in a meeting a few weeks ago where the parents felt it was very important for them to leave the cabin for the kids. But a lot of times, do the kids even want the cabin? Right. And again, in this case, it was three kids. The two boys wanted to keep the cottage, but the daughter was somewhat disengaged from the family, but she's currently on title for a third, a third, a third. I just basically walked these clients through the conversation. If you don't have that properly documented, you could see how this could be problematic if the daughter's entitled to a third of the estate and they have to sell the cabin to give her a third of the estate because they don't have the capital otherwise. For sure. The will's a starting point, but without having that communication with your family, there's a, a big part missing there. A lot can be left to interpretation and a lot of assumptions may be built in that can cause some greater issues down the road for family, right? And I don't know about you, Regan, but when I pass away, the last thing I want is my kids fighting because I passed away and hadn't communicated. And I don't think anybody does. But without that communication piece, even though I know for a lot of people, it's tough to kind of talk about that end of life, those scenarios, it, it is difficult, but it's just a, leaving a lot to chance, I think, if you're not having those conversations with your kids or whoever your, your beneficiaries are. 
save everyone from a lot of stress in the future. When it comes to beneficiaries, do you do thorough reviews on that to ensure the beneficiaries on all accounts are set up correctly and things of that nature? Yeah, so we do, every couple of years, we'll go back through and do a beneficiary audit and we kind of pull everything together, present it to the client, walk back through it to make sure everything looks good. As far as their wishes go, we also want to make sure that what we have for beneficiaries on things like life insurance policies, tax-free savings accounts, potentially other registered accounts is in alignment with the will too. We're not presenting different outcomes on different documents. We want to make sure that's all aligned. So that's definitely something that's important when you're doing that estate planning piece is to make sure if you're updating or, or doing a new will that everything's coordinated with the other beneficiaries you've chosen where you're potentially bypassing the estate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do. Something similar is I just... We try to pay attention to the beneficiaries in, in my meetings. I just kind of review the accounts, just make sure it's appropriate or still the way it should be, but yeah, kind of an important thing. What else do you have as a topic for us, Joe? Sure. Well, an estate plan is not complete with just a will. As far as documents go, we also need uh, two powers of attorney. So a power of attorney for property and then a power of attorney for health. I guess starting with property, the whole idea here is if you're unable to make any kind of financial decisions because you get lost abroad or because you're too ill to be able to make these decisions, somebody needs to make those on your behalf. So by having that power of attorney for property in place, you can choose who's going to be able to make those decisions for you. So that's an important piece. That's a more of a, like a, a living document, right? But also a very important piece of an estate plan. And then the power of attorney for health. So same idea, if you're unable to make your decisions around healthcare, because most likely you're too ill to do that, you want to make sure that your loved ones or whoever you trust to make those decisions for you, you've documented that in that power of attorney. And I think it's important to choose wisely, <laughs> essentially, of who you'd pick for both of those power of attorneys. Obviously, the financial one, you need someone that you can trust and that's going to act in your best interest. So they fiduciary responsibility is to act as if they were you, essentially, and also making sure that person has the capacity to do those and handle your estate. And depending on how complex your estate is, there could be a lot of moving parts that they may not be able to handle. So you'd want to choose those wisely. So that's power of attorney, both those power of attorneys. Also the, the executor, we didn't talk a lot about the executor, but those are decisions, everything you just said, you want to make sure that's all taken into account when choosing your executor. And you also want to talk to those people. In a lot of cases, again, it's going to be the kids, but making sure that A, they want to do it, and if you do choose maybe one and, and not another, like explaining why you want that to happen and why you think that's good and why you're not trying to slight the other child if there's two children as an example. Obviously, I know that's not every situation, but the point is being intentional, communicating it, making sure everyone's on the same page. And this is something that we've been talking to clients about a little bit more. Maybe it's not the best option to have your kids as the executors. Like maybe they're not cut out for it. Maybe it's putting too much stress on them. You know, if they're busy, they have their own kids, their own job. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of hours of work a lot of attention to detail required, right? So there are other services out there where you can hire people to perform those services. So those are also things to explore. And one option we've talked a little bit about recently is maybe one of the kids when initially chooses your executor is on there as an executor, but maybe there's also a corporate executor on there as well. The family can kind of stay on top of what's going on and there's someone to update the beneficiaries, but, you know, kind of here's where we're at. You know, this is why we're delayed or what we're waiting for. But they still have that corporate trustee who's more qualified and able to dedicate the time to make sure everything's done properly. The thing that you brought up a while back too was uh, digital assets, keeping a good journal of law information, that sort of thing. Not that most people have done this, but I think most people know it's a good idea to keep a, what we call an estate registry so that 
your family knows where everything is, right? So, you know, here's our advisors, our lawyers, here's our investment accounts, here's the bank accounts we have, these are the insurance policies we have, where you can find all that. So that's something everybody should have. But people have been talking about that for a long time. But what people have not been talking about, and we're starting to think more about, is digital assets. Your Facebook accounts, your email logins, your bill accounts for your electricity and utilities, all that kind of stuff subscriptions, Netflix, there's so many accounts we have online. Like if you go and think about all the things that you log into in any given year, I mean, it's countless at this point, right? Without addressing that, ideally, you address it with some kind of a clause within the will, you know, that you're giving executors permissions to be able to take care of all that, wind things down as you wish, or maybe even a memo attached. So ideally, it is being addressed somehow within the will. But also, it's letting your you know, executor know, okay, well, how do they find all that information? How do they know, A, what accounts even exist? And how are they finding the, the passwords to get in there, right? And so there's some different services, some different ways that that can be managed. You could do it kind of the old school way of just writing it all down in pen and paper. Probably some more efficient ways of doing it, like password managers is a way. There are some digital legacy kind of online vaults. So there's some different ways of doing it, but it's definitely something that is overlooked, seen it a little bit more now, but it's, it's definitely being overlooked still. And I think if we're talking about estate planning, we can't leave out taxes <laughs> in this event. So I guess simply put, you know, if mom passed away, everything goes to dad. And if dad passed away, everything goes to mom. It's when the last spouse dies. Essentially in Canada, technically we don't have an estate tax. It's a, called a deemed disposition tax. So simply what that means is that when you pass away or the last spouse passes away, the government has deemed you to have sold all of your assets at fair market value. So your registered accounts, your non-registered accounts, your property, primary residence, all that stuff is considered sold. And that there's different ways that the tax can be calculated on um, various different types of assets. But the parts of your assets that are subject to tax, I guess, is going to be on your final income return. Typically, the tax liability when you run these projections oftentimes comes as quite a sticker shock for clients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we started thinking about 50% roughly of what's left in our rest or registered retirement accounts, if we've had non-registered investments that have been growing for years and years, I mean, those capital gains can be pretty outstanding. I think a big surprise for a lot of people is that they can't just give the cottage to the kids. Like if that's a second property that, you know, mom and dad purchased in the 70s for $50,000 is now worth a million dollars. There's quarter million dollars in taxes when you pass away. So there are for some people, some big surprises there. And it's definitely better to be addressing those in your planning now about what is the outlook and what are some strategies we could be putting in place or how can we be addressing this to kind of minimize that impact or make sure everyone's taken care of the way we want once we're no longer here. So if you went through the analysis and you'll never know exactly what that number is going to be, your final, like it's the best you could do is you're getting it in the ballpark, in my opinion, because... Yeah, of course. It's quite a ways out usually those projections. But if you've done that analysis and you know what that number is, if it's a number that is sizable or creates complexities when distributing the estate, we could start looking at strategies to implement now, which I would typically call these like the organic strategies. So maybe we do take out more out of your RIF account every year to maximize your tax-free savings account, right? It's not going to have much of an impact typically on a retirement plan and the success of your retirement, but it will obviously reduce the uh, tax liability upon death. That would be an idea of one of the strategies that you could do to start minimizing the estate tax. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyone who has more money than they're probably going to spend, that's usually something we want to do is be moving some of the money out of the risks, even though we're not spending it. 
because we can be getting out of that yeah, that taxable environment when they pass away, right? Where it makes sense to probably just take the minimum we can out of the rifts is if someone is really struggling to keep with their lifestyle, they're going to spend every dollar of sustainable income that they have, right? Then we probably want to keep that there. Otherwise, we can shift that thinking to what's the estate going to look like when we pass away, moving money out of rifts. So before we jumped on here, we were also talking about, in some cases, how life insurance is a potential option to... I guess, enhance estate value, potentially reduce taxes. I mean, I'll let you expand on that a little bit. Yeah, well, I actually recently just did a podcast on this, a little plug for myself there, I guess, <laughs> about the tax benefits when doing estate planning and life insurance in particular. When you're looking at this, there's one of three things that, for the most part, this is why most people would implement it. It could be a matter of preserving your estate. You have an insurance policy in there to somewhat mirror the estate tax liability. It doesn't reduce the tax liability, but what the kids would ultimately or the beneficiaries would ultimately get would be your full estate after tax kind of thing. Sometimes when you're dealing with your estate, you know, parents typically want to do a third, a third, a third, or whatever, half and half or a quarter per, depending on how many kids, right? However, sometimes equal isn't always fair. Sure. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. But in an event where, like we had mentioned before, if you have two kids that want to keep the cottage, but the third one, they don't want anything to do with it, then this is where you could have a life insurance policy come into play, which would basically equalize the estate. So it would go, you could have it named directly to that third child, and it could be for an amount that is close to what the kids would have received with the cabin. Everyone's different with this when it comes to like how much estate planning, like does this tax liability bother you? How much do you want to leave? Like, I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer with that one. And everyone's different. And some people, not often, but some people want to leave as much money as possible behind. And if that is the case, there's not too many other better vehicles out there quite as good as uh, using a permanent form of life insurance. For sure. I mean, any money going in there, there's potential for growth. There's no tax on it while it grows, no tax when you pass away. So it is a way to take money that you're never going to spend in your lifetime and put it in a place where you're going to end up paying less tax and maximize giving to the kids. And then maybe one thing I'd add to that is a lot of times we're talking to wealthier retirees. They also are philanthropists. They like to give a lot of money to charity. And so another way to use that life insurance is we could be donating the proceeds of a life insurance policy or making the charity a beneficiary so that the proceeds go to the charity of your choice or charities of your choice. And then the estate's going to get an offsetting charitable tax receipt to reduce the taxes on the estate. I think when it comes to life insurance, the benefits of it, if you did have a policy, a permanent policy that had a cash surrender value is what it typically is called, depending on the life insurance company, but typically it's a cash surrender value. And that's essentially the investment component inside the policy, and then you're going to have a death benefit. But when you pass away, everything gets paid out, or the death benefit is what gets paid out, which is a tax-free disposition. So we touched on a lot of different things today, Regan, and this is supposed to be essentials. So I think we hit most <laughs> of the, <laughs> the essentials. Yeah. Anything that you wanted to add? Not really. I think it just comes down to when you're dealing with this Getting involved with professionals to get it done correctly, I think, is a, a key thing because go back to the, the beginning of this conversation talking about wills being not up to date and not be reflective of what the true wishes were. And in some cases, the absence of the will. When you bring these concerns or your wishes and things like that to professionals, whether it be advisors like us or a good wills and a state lawyer, they're going to ensure that everything is caught up to speed and try to reduce any type of headaches down the road. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'll leave everyone with a couple of action items. So action item number one is if you have not done your will or updated any time recently, 
start having that conversation, book an appointment with the specialist who's going to help you get that into place. And if you do have up-to-date state documents, then I would plan in the calendar some time with your family, your executor, and kind of communicate what those wishes are. Perfect. Okay. Well, I think that covers off today's topic. All right. Thanks, Regan. Take care. Perfect. Talk to you guys soon. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.